It's good to see you this morning. It really is. Uh, I've had uh, my eyelids pulled up a little bit, and it's amazing what I can see now that, that I was missing. So I'm thankful to the Lord for that. This is Thanksgiving week, and as it is every year, it, it's a very busy week. Uh, we either have family coming to be with us, or we're planning to go and be with family. And so we have some of our family that have already uh, begun to uh, travel, and some will be coming this way, but we just want to be in prayer for each other that this week will be a week where we can really experience uh, all the blessings that God uh, wants us to have, and he wants us to be a people who are full of thanksgiving. He wants us to be a people who are grateful for all the many blessings that he gives to us couple of uh, prayer requests before we begin. You may have already heard, but uh, our young uh, friend, Cardarius Ware, um, he passed away a couple of days ago. Uh, details are still sketchy, uh, but um, you pray for his father and, uh, and his brother. Uh, his father is Frederick Trainer, and uh, we've been in... Uh, Tony and um, another guy. I can't think of the name. Anyway, uh, details are still in the mix, deciding what to do and when to do it. And again, Thanksgiving week uh, can be a difficult time to, to be dealing with all these things. But you pray that the, the Lord be glorified. Uh, through the home going of uh, Cardarius. And then also uh, my uncle, uh, Dr. James Rayford, he lives in Jacksonville, Florida. He's had a massive stroke, and he has blood clots that are lodged in his artery and uh, in his legs, and he's, uh, he's on his deathbed, apart from God's just miraculous work. And all of uh, his children from Richardson, Texas, and Tupelo, Mississippi. Uh, they're all being called in so that they can be there to comfort uh, their mother and uh, also to be with Uncle Jim. And they expect the Lord uh, to, to gather him home uh, fairly soon. And uh, I've wrestled with wanting to be there, but also realizing this is Thanksgiving week. And Glenda, I haven't given you all the details, but I'm leaving in the morning. <laughs> um, I've got a ride all the way to the airport in Jacksonville. And from there, I can rent a car and go to the hospital and see what's going on. And if, it's, if things are stable, then I can get on a plane and, and come back. But anyway, it's been a, a busy, busy weekend. We were in Georgia for Grandparents' Day at school. We came back for a wedding rehearsal and a wedding yesterday, and uh, now here we are this morning, a time of worship uh, and a study of God's Word, and then the leading up to Thursday, Thanksgiving Day. So there are, there's a lot uh, going on in my life, and I know there's a lot going on in your life as well. I'm going to have a, an opening word of prayer, and immediately following that, we have a little short video that's going to... Tell us something about uh, Thanksgiving. Well, let's put our hearts together. Father, uh, I do thank you that for the believer, every day is a day of Thanksgiving. 
certainly every day we can see your mercy uh, extended into our lives. We can see your presence and sense uh, your presence. And we know that you go before us and you make clear paths. And even when the path is not clear, you enable us to, to navigate and to go where you want us to go and accomplish what you want us to do. So we do give thanks for your wonderful love and uh, for your deity. We thank you for your omniscience and your omnipotence and, and all the things that characterize you. And we thank you for your son, Christ, whom you gave to us through the cross of Calvary, that those who believe that he really was God and he died for our sin, we have forgiveness and the gift and hope of eternal life with you. Uh, we have uh, many things to be thankful for. But we also have many burdens. And so uh, we know that you're aware of each and every one. But for this uh, hour, as we come together corporately, uh, may it be a time of worship. And as we sing, worship as we study your word. May you be glorified by your church gathering together and honoring you. And we ask your blessing upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. thank the Lord this morning because he is who he is, because we are who we are. And he has allowed us to come into his presence this morning to worship him. And we're a little fewer in number looking out there a little bit today. That's okay. But we can still raise our voices and praise to him. So we're going to give you that opportunity right now. Let's all stand and let's just worship together and just follow us. And let's just worship together and let's just worship a holy God. Are we?
Joyfully sing together. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. A little more piano, please. A little more piano. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the down of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness, fill us with the light of day. All thy works with joy surround thee, earth and heaven reflect thy rays. Stars and angels sing around thee, center of unbroken praise. Fields and forests, vales and mountain, flowery meadow, flashing sea. Chanting bird and flowing fountain, call us to rejoice in thee. Thou art giving and forgiving, ever blessing, ever blessed. Wellspring of the joy of living, ocean depth of happy rest. Thou our Father, Christ our brother, all who live in love are thine. Teach us how to love each other. Lift us to the joy divine. And our God is a holy God, and we sing the power of that holiness. Uh, Justin, have a little more piano up here, please, up in, on the stage. I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise. 
that spread the flowing seas abroad and build lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command, and all the stars obey. I sing the goodness of the Lord that filled the earth with food. He formed the creatures with his word and then pronounced them good. Lord, how thy wonders are displayed where I turn my eye. If I survey the I tread or gaze upon the sky. There's not a plant or flower below but makes thy glories known. And clouds arise and tempests blow by order from thy throne. While all that borrows life from thee is ever in thy care, and everywhere that man can be, thou God art present there. Thank you. you may be seated. These are some old hymns that we pu pulled out this, uh, this morning so that we can uh, really sing the power of God, sing the holiness of God. And the fact that God is holy, he is unique, he's separated, he's different from us. And we're supposed to be different from the world, but he's even different from us. And we can't even fathom who God really is. But he's given us in his word everything that pertains to who he is, all we need to know about him. And so we sing about his holiness. And we're so thankful this morning that we are part of a family that is led by such a holy, holy God. We talk about that. Thad mentions this several times, that God's not only holy, but he is holy, holy, holy. He's triple that. He's triple that, whatever it is. Absolutely, he's probably more than that. But anyway, we want to, uh, the choir to sing a song. We've done this song we were looking at. We've done this song since 1999, this particular one. <laughs> and we've enjoyed doing this through the years because it is such a powerful, powerful song. We want to ask y'all to join in with us in, in a little while, too, and I'll let you know when that is. But we're going to sing about the holiness of God. Holy is he.
out now. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and Praise God. Let's have a word of prayer, maybe. Father, I just want to thank you for your holiness. God, you are the only one. You're merciful. You're mighty. You're everything that we can think of. The words that we use today is awesome. You're powerful. 
God, you are the God of all. You are the Holy One. The one is so different. The one that is separated from any God that we can come up with in our own minds. Lord, and we thank you that you are the living, you are the living God. And Lord, I just pray today that as we continue to worship and we continue to give you thanks for all of your goodness to us, mostly for the fact that you have given us your son Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for our sin, has taken our place, Lord, what a holy God you are, because no other God would ever do that. Lord, God, you are a wonderful, mighty God. And, Lord, we just want to praise you for that this morning. Be with us through the rest of our time, Lord. I pray for George as he brings the word to you tonight, today. And, Lord, be with us now. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. As I was thinking about a passage that would be appropriate for today, being the Sunday before Thanksgiving, uh, they were about two or three thousand. <laughs> they were quite a few. Uh, and I began to whittle them down and whittle them down and whittle them down. And during that same time, uh, I'm teaching a small group on Sunday nights, and we're going through the revelation of Jesus Christ. We haven't gotten very far, but uh, we're, we're, we're going. And I know that it's also being taught on Tuesday nights. Uh, and then uh, Donna in her Sunday school class or church education class uh, for the last 17 years, she's been going. <laughs> and that's all right. You know, you, you got to be thorough. And so it's been a hot topic. It's been a hot topic. And as I was reading through it, and as I've been anticipating the time when in the small group we can come to uh, these, this portion of God's Word, I was reading it, and I said, that's going to be my Thanksgiving message because I can't think of anything that will make us more thankful than to see our Savior for who He really is. Not just here in our hearts. We know but in heaven, because here on earth, uh, for every one of us that knows him, there's probably hundreds and hundreds of thousands of those who don't. They don't know who he is. They don't know what he did. They can't appreciate the need for what he did in terms of redemption. Uh, somewhere I've got, uh, yeah. Um, I got to turn it on. I know that. And it's red, so it ought to be on. Turn it back off. Oh, now it's on. In Matthew chapter 16, this is that portion of Scripture where Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi and he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, 
But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I can just hear that Jewish brogue, Thou art the Christ, the living, the Son of the living God. And by Christ, he used the word that represented his messianic office. You're the Messiah of Israel. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonas, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus commended him. You hit it right on the head. You understand who I am. Uh, years ago, in 1972, I think, uh, and sitting in chapel in Dallas Seminary, we had uh, my pastor at the time, W.A. Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Church, Dallas, as they like to say it. He came and spoke. It was his annual uh, visit to the seminary. He loved Dallas Seminary, and that was a little bit odd because he was a Southern Baptist pastor, and they said, we want you to love our seminaries. And uh, he was one of the leading forces in the 70s of starting a war. He said, we're going to take our seminaries back. They've been taken over by liberals, and we want them back. And he and uh, Judge Pressler and some others, uh, they succeeded. And it kind of put a little rift uh, in, in the convention that separated the true conservatives from what we would call liberals. They don't like to be called liberals. Liberals never like to be called what they are. I'm a conservative, and I love to be called a conservative. That's what I am. I'm proud of it. If I were a liberal, I'd say, call me a liberal. Call me a flaming liberal. But they're moderates. They like to be called moderates. But anyway, uh, he succeeded in anchoring his denomination back to the Word of God as it should be. But he told this story. He said the modern theologians, Barth and Bonhoeffer and Bruner and Boatman and Tillich, they met the Lord Jesus. Now these guys are flaming, <laughs> liberal, German theologians. They met the Lord, and the Lord asked these famed and illustrious theologians, who do men say that I am? And they replied, some say you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Some say you're Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Some even say you're the Christ, the Son of God. Then the Lord said to these the theologians, but who do you say that I am? And Barth and Bonhoeffer and Bruner and Boatman and Tillich, they chorused back their learned answer. Thou art the ground of being. Thou art the leap of faith into the impenetrable unknown. Thou art the existential, unphrasable, unverbalized, unpropositional confrontation with the infinity of inherent subjective experience. And the Lord looked at them and said, Huh? <laughs> it's not a difficult question to answer. Peter got it right. And every one of us who can say, I'm, I'm born again. I've experienced a new birth through Jesus Christ. You know who he is. But there are a lot of people on this earth that still don't know. It's been debated for 2,000 years. 
Some people want to say, well, uh, he's, not, he's not man, but he's not God. He's a, he's a phantom. He's something in between. They have all kinds of theories. Books have been written. Um, let me back up. I'm not ready for that. Books have been written. Uh, a few, well, 30, 40 years ago, a guy named Hugh Schoenfeld, Schoenfeld, he wrote a book called The Passover Plot. And he said that Jesus was just a carpenter's son, and he just began to notice in reading the scriptures that there were a lot of similarities between the life of Messiah and his life. Hey, I grew up in Nazareth. My dad was a carpenter. Uh, you know, I was born in Bethlehem. And so he just came to the conclusion, I must be the Messiah. So he began to really search because he wanted to do everything that Messiah was going to do. And then he came to the part where it says he's going to die. And he said, uh-oh, uh, how do I get past that one? And so he developed this plot where Jesus was to uh, drug himself and he would feign and they thought he was dead and they put him in the tomb. And, and everything was going great until that soldier didn't read the script and he stabbed him in the side with the spear. And Jesus eventually died. And it kind of brought it into his plot. A more recent uh, thing, just as ludicrous, is the book and movie, The Da Vinci Code, by Dan Brown. Um, we went to Peru, Dr. Hugh and myself and a team of students. I don't see Dr. Hugh today. I guess he's just wore out from that wedding yesterday. But we went to Peru, and uh, I was privileged to be there, and, and he was in charge. He was the man. I was just... I was just helping him herd the cattle, so to speak. And we got invited to a university in downtown Lima. It was a Marxist university. It had a wall around it, and there was no sidewalk. Uh, the wall, you, you were in the street, or else you were climbing the wall. Nothing in between. We had to surrender our passports through a, a, a little trap door in, a, in the door, and we had to wait until they went and checked us out to make sure that we weren't government uh, whatever. Finally, they let us in. And they ushered us into this beautiful room that was tiered. And they invited all the students and a lot of the faculty. They were all there. And we were up on the, the stage. And it was going to be question and answer. And the first question, somebody said, tell us about the Da Vinci Code. Uh, is it true? Is it not true? What, what's the deal? And Dr. Hugh said, that's a very good question. And he said, I'm going to turn to my illustrious colleague, uh, the right reverend Dr. Marange, and let him answer that one. <laughs> I hadn't even read the book yet. But, uh, and, and, of course, the Marxists, they were hoping that I would say that it's true. The Roman Catholic Church is a sham, it's corrupt. And the Catholics, they were hoping I would say it's not true because that book does try to put the, the Roman Catholic Church in a bad light. And it doesn't need any help. It can do that all its, on its own. It doesn't need people to be fabricating things. But uh, we've managed to survive that and some other questions as well. But they're modern-day people. They, they will try to distort in any way they can to avoid the simple truth that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who, who Jesus is. 
I want us to look at Revelation chapter 5 this morning. Uh, I've, I've entitled it, The Christology of Heaven. On earth, they debate who he is. 2,000 years, and they still debate who is Jesus Christ. They wrote a rock concert, Jesus Christ Superstar. Jesus Christ Superstar, tell us who you really are. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, what have you done to sacrifice? And they mock him. That The whole point of that production is to mock Jesus and try to show that he's, he has nothing to do with the living God and he has no uh, right whatsoever to bring salvation to mankind through his own death on the cross. But in Revelation 5, it says, you know, down on earth, y'all may be wrestling with, with who he is, but up here in heaven, there's no debate. They know exactly who Christ is. And in this chapter, it, it begins uh, with a challenge of God that is proclaimed in verses 1 to 4. And then 5 to 7, the Christ of God will be presented. And then 8 to 11, the remainder of the chapter, the choice of God is praised. And uh, to coin a phrase, all heaven breaks out when we come to verse uh, uh, 8 uh, to 11. But let's see if we can work our way through this in our time. Um, the challenge of God proclaimed. And three things, I think, are significant in these verses. Let's read them first. It says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven, nor on the earth, or under the earth, was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. This book was a scroll as the, the slide shows you. In that day, they would take parchment and they would write and they would roll it and write and roll it. If it was a legal document, which this is, there would be places where they would seal it so that you couldn't unfold it any further than where you were. You had to have certain authority to break that seal to see what's in the document. This document has seven seals. And it's a legal document. Uh, it goes back to the time of, of Jeremiah. Uh, in Jeremiah's day, when Israel was going into Babylonian captivity, because of her disobedience, she wasn't honoring the, uh, the Sabbath uh, years of rest for the land. And in verse 11 of chapter uh, 32, it says, Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. This is the title to land, to property. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of uh, Maseah, in the sight of Hanamel, my uncle's son, and in the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. 
And I commanded Baruch in the, their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase, and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar. That's a clay pot, that it may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. They were to protect the deeds of who owns what, so that one day when they returned to the land, those deeds would be brought back uh, to, the, to the court, and it would determine who gets the land. So it protected landowners while they went into captivity and while the land uh, lay uh, waste for all that time. Uh, that, that's what this document is. It represents a legal deed, and in this case, it's the legal deed to the earth. And uh, it's a sign of ownership, and it's a sign of authority. But it says that there's silence. There, there's, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. The proclamation, who's worthy to take this book? Because if you take the book, you are saying, I have authority over the earth. This is the title to it. And I have authority to break these seals. And in the context of the book of Revelation, those seals represent the judgments that God will pour out upon the earth. And that's uh, chapter 7 and following in the book. And John sobs. He began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. That brings us to verses 5 to 7. The Christ of God is now presented. One of the elders says to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Stop weeping, John. There is someone. There is someone who has the authority and the right to take that book and to break the seals and to bring forth the judgments that God has determined upon those who dwell on the earth. And that phrase in Revelation, those who dwell on the earth, it's always a reference to the ungodly. His own people are in that, that category. Israel, in the tribulation, is an ungodly nation. And it's through those judgments that God will purify a remnant so that when Christ returns to establish his kingdom on earth, there will be a nation Israel for Messiah to reign over, as well as all the other nations that are on the earth. But he says, stop weeping. Behold the lion. That's from the tribe of Judah. That's the ruling uh, family. The, the kings of Israel all uh, came from the tribe of Judah. And David was the greatest of all up until, uh, that, uh, until the future time. But David was the great, great king. And it was to David that it was promised, the scepter shall never depart from, from you, from your line. The, the kings will always be descendants of your lineage. And Jesus Christ 
when he came into this world as the son of Mary, she was a member of the royal family, and so she gave him royal blood. Jesus was born into royalty. There was no kingdom at that time. They were in captivity to Rome. And then he was the stepson of Joseph. Joseph was not uh, the, the blood father of Jesus. That would have contaminated him with the same curse that the rest of humanity is dealing with. But he was the heir apparent to the throne if there was a throne. So Mary gave Jesus the blood right, and G Joseph gave Jesus the legal right to one day be the king of Israel. So he says, stop weeping. He has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now what did he do to overcome? Well, we know that he came at his first coming and went to the cross. And he atoned for the sins of the world. And then he rose from the dead victoriously. Thus proving that his death was acceptable to his father. And having atoned for sin, now it's possible for those who put their trust in him to not be under the guilt of sin any longer, but to have forgiveness and a glorious future. Uh, we're told to look to the uh, look and see, and we see the lion. But verse six, John says, "I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, and sent out into all the earth." I'm glad that John interprets that for us, because can you imagine all the different kind of interpretations we would get uh, without that, that, that statement? Uh, that's a, that's a, a, a figurative way of talking about the authority that this one uh, from, this, this one who's now a lamb, he was told to look at the lion from the tribe of Judah, and when he looks between the throne and the elders, he sees a lamb standing as if slain with great authority and with great knowledge. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When we talk about the Christ of God, He's portrayed in two ways. He's portrayed as the Lion of Judah, but he's also referred to as the Lamb who was slain and has overcome. And when we, when we ask the question, you know, who is Jesus? Our answer is that he's the Lamb, he's the Lion. As the Lamb, he came in meekness. As the lion, he will one day come in a majestic procession of claiming his throne as king of Israel and king of kings and lord of lords. The lamb emphasized God's grace. He came to provide for, for the greatest problem man had, sin. And he took it upon himself and fully paid the debt. God was propitiated. Jesus cried out, it is finished. 
There is nothing more that has to be done. Well, wait a minute. What about if sin goes up 20% this year? No, no. He paid it all. Nothing will ever have to be done again. And all you have to do is accept the gift that's being offered to you or reject it. The lion will come and, and, and bring government. He will set up a kingdom upon the earth. The lamb was our savior. The lion will be our sovereign. Obviously, the lamb is referring to his first coming. At his first coming, Jesus came in meek and lowliness. He was the carpenter's son, they thought. They didn't realize that royal blood ran through his veins. They didn't realize that he was the legal heir to the throne of Israel. They didn't realize that he alone would atone for the sins of all, Jew and Gentile. But there are a lot of things that are yet to be done, and at his second coming, that's when we'll see the majesty. We'll see the king coming on his white horse. We'll see the government being imposed upon those who dwell on the earth and the removal of those who oppose him, those who refuse to acknowledge who he really is. We'll see his sovereign reign over all nations. People shudder. I don't buy into this uh, uh, dictatorship kind of stuff. Well, it all depends on who the dictator is. And in this case, we'll love him because he will rule with justice and fairness and mercy. He will rule according to his character, and his character is the same as God the Father. He will never do anything that's not right. He will never do anything that would tarnish his character. If we got a ruler like that, uh, put me in with Czechoslovakia and all the rest of them, uh, that, that's going to be fine. But that's who Jesus is. He's the lamb who came the first time. And he'll be the lion who returns one day. And he'll come to impose his will upon those who dwell on the earth. As the lamb... Uh, well, I guess I don't have that. Nope, I don't. But as the lamb, uh, he was a selected lamb. Mark 10.45 says, I did not come to serve, but, uh, but I did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my life a ransom for many. He was selected to be the one who would die as the, in the place of the sinner. He was a spotless lamb. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 that there was no blemish in him. He was holy and righteous. He was a silent lamb. Isaiah prophesied that he would say nothing when the kangaroo court held its, 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 its court and they charged him with blasphemy. Only God can do what you're claiming to do. And he said, well, then we have no problem because that's who I am. <laughs> and they couldn't accept that. He was a slain lamb. Revelation 13 and verse 8, it says, All who dwell upon the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. And he'll be a substitutionary Lamb. 
Paul said, He who had no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. He's our substitute. Christ died for the sinner. Paul makes that clear. He didn't die for good people. He died for the sinner. Well, what percentage of the population were sinners? 100%. There were no good people. Now, there were good people as men count goodness. They were having their annual man of the year, and uh, the Kiwanis Club was giving its uh, Jerusalem Citizenship Award. And we, we measure goodness among men, but God measures goodness by himself. Are you as good as I am? Are you as righteous as I am? And Christ died for sinners, and that means we all qualify. Well, he didn't die for me. Yes, he did. Well, what's the alternative? Well, I'll earn my way. Well, then you won't go because nobody will ever earn their way. Your best effort on a color scale would be the darkest black that, that we can conceive of. You think, well, I'm going to be up there with almost white. I'm, I'm pretty good. I've done a lot of good stuff. God says, you are as black as sin. Matter of fact, you are sin. And you will never merit what I'm offering you freely as a gift through the redemption of his death at the cross. His position. Uh, we talk about, uh, I think I need to back up one. Yeah. His person and his position. It, it says in, in verse 6, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing. He's in a place of preeminence. He's the focal point of this scene that's taking place in heaven. He's the focus of it. He's preeminent because he is the eternal Son of God who became the man Christ Jesus and went to the cross in obedience to the Father to accomplish redemption for all who will simply believe. He's preeminent in heaven. People don't want to make him preeminent on earth. <laughs> uh, he's not allowed in schools. He's not allowed in government uh, buildings. Uh, the only time we can pray is when we have a catastrophe and then the governor will say, tomorrow's a day of prayer. We all got to pray, 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 because we, this, is, this is really bad and we need God's help. And it's sort of like Alka-Seltzer. You know, we we go to the bathroom cabinet, we take it out and put it in plop, plop, fizz, fizz, guzz, guzz, guzz. I feel better now. And put it back in the cabinet and go off and just keep doing what we're doing. And he's there for when we really, really, really need him. And most of the time, we don't even think he exists. But, you know, if it'll help, we'll, we'll, we'll take it. He, he's been banned from his own creation. He doesn't get credit for being the creator of all that is. Instead, we say, well, you know, millions and millions and millions and millions of years ago, uh, that's when things got started. Well, what, what were those things that got started? Who made that? <laughs> well, it just sort of it made itself, and we've been evolving uh, ever since. And you say, that sounds kind of childish. But you see, the problem is, if, you, if you're not willing to say, 
the Lord God of heaven made the heavens and the earth. If you can't say that and believe that, there's only one alternative. It had to make itself somehow, some way. And to me, that's the downfall of, of evolution. Ultimately, it depends on people accepting as a fact what is ridiculous. I don't think intelligence can comprehend that such a thing could happen. You go back millions and millions of years, and the sun, that is a gaseous ball, it's, it's giving off, it's burning out. And the further you go back in time, the bigger the sun gets. And the bigger the sun gets, the hotter it gets on earth. And life cannot sustain itself. There's a magnetic field that is on the earth. That's why I stand here, and I'm not floating around. Gravity pulls me to, to the, the closest thing that, that hinders me from, from going any further. If I stepped off, then it would pull me down to there. Well, further you go back in time, millions and millions and millions and millions of years, the greater the magnetic field gets because it is slowly decaying. Well, you can go back so far in time and you can't walk. The magnetic field would be so strong, you're stuck. And you'll need a crane to pull you up to go, go to there. They don't talk about that. But to me, that's, that's some common sense things. But his position, he is preeminent in heaven. He's the focus of everything that's about to happen because he's the one that's going to take that book and break those seals and that's going to be the outpouring of God's judgment upon the earth during this time that we call the tribulation. And I'm going to mention in just a second, you're, you're, you're saying, well, uh, where are we going to be when all this is going on? Well, since you asked that, uh, give me just, let me finish. His passion, his person, his position, his passion. Uh, it says, uh, verse 7, he came, and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now, it wasn't disrespectful. He didn't do it disrespectfully. But he came to the father on the throne and said, this is mine. And he took it with the idea that he'll never let it go. He won't say, well, I didn't really didn't want it. He won't go out and put it on eBay. He has a responsibility to execute the judgments that God has determined for this earth because of unbelief. And there's a, an emphatic concept of him coming and taking the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now it said that he was between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders. I don't have time, but the four living creatures I think are angelic beings that are created to be there in heaven and to attend to the holiness of God and the things that are going on. As for the elders, uh, in chapter 4, it says that there were 24 of them. Now, there's a lot of different theories that are going around. Some people say, well, 12 and 12. They represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And the problem with that is that Israel has not been resurrected yet. Uh, Israel, their spirits are with the Lord, because Hades has been emptied. Believers don't go to Hades anymore. They go to be with the Lord. 
But they haven't experienced resurrection. Their resurrection will come at the end of the tribulation when the kingdom is inaugurated. Old Testament saved Israel will be resurrected to enjoy that kingdom as well as tribulational saints that are killed during the tribulation. So it can't involve Israel because it's not their time yet. The only people that can be there, and it's their time to be there, is the body of Christ. You say, well, why would we refer to that as the 24 elders? Well, we would do that because 24 is a number of representation. In the Old Testament, with the uh, priesthood, it grew and it grew and it grew until finally they had to organize it. And they organized it into 24 groups. And they rotated their service to the temple on a, on a daily basis, a weekly basis, whatever it was. And we're told from Scripture that as the uh, body of Christ, we are a royal priesthood. And so I think that this is referring to the church. The church is in this scene. We are the 24 elders. We've been raptured out of the world. Those who were living were just instantly changed. Those who were in the graves, we were given new resurrected bodies to unite with our spirit. And we're all together. The bride of Christ is in heaven being purified, being prepared for the marriage of the Lamb. And then after the marriage of the Lamb, the groom will come to the earth and bring his bride for the reception. In biblical times, uh, their wedding feast lasted uh, as long as the groom's father or the bride's father had money to, to carry it on. But if you were very wealthy, you had a long feast. It might, la it might last days. If you were going from check to check, it might be uh, uh, cookies and, and crackers and Alabama punch, uh, which is, is cold ice water. Uh, this, this wedding uh, feast is going to be a thousand years because the groom's father, he has a wealth untold. There's no limit to the wealth of God. He owns it all. But, but anyway, the church is there. And we'll be witnesses to this event when he takes that book. Because that's when the tribulation will begin. And by the way, that's a strong argument, therefore, for a pre-tribulational rapture. Um, there, are a lot, there are more arguments. Don't have time today to go into them. But there are, there are just some solid, there, there are so many solid arguments for a pre-tribulational rapture, and there are so many weak arguments for a post-tribulational rapture. You know, to put the church through the tribulation, that violates the nature of the church. It violates the nature of the tribulation. The tribulation is not designed to be the time when God purifies the church. The tribulation is that time when God judges those who dwell upon the earth, the unbelievers. And a remnant will be provided from that. There'll be a remnant among the Gentiles. There'll be a remnant of Israel. But it's the worst judgment this earth has ever seen. And you and I will be delivered from it because we are the bride of Christ. But that's his passion. Christ's passion is to do what his father willed for him to do. 
in Hebrews 12, it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Can you imagine going to the cross and being crucified? Can you imagine that being a joyful thing? You know, hey, guess what? I'm going to be crucified today. And they're going to stick a spear in my side and it's going to really be great. No, that's, that's horrible. That is horrible. He wasn't talking about rejoicing over being crucified. He said, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was doing the will of his Father. He said, I live to do the will of my Father. There were times when that's what I wanted to do with my dad. I, I knew what he liked, and I, I loved doing it because I knew how happy it made him. And we'd get some, some uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, lanyap. We'd, we'd get a little extra. He'd, he'd buy us a, a soda pop, or uh, we'd go fishing for a couple hours. Or, or uh, he took me a couple times to see uh, the Tigers play Tulane. And that, that was really great because uh, Tulane, I don't know why they play football. Uh, we beat them three times, 62 to nothing. And on the third time, LSU scored to make it 62, and they lined up for the point after. And the team did not want to make that extra point. They wanted to stay on 62. That's our number. When it comes to Tulane, 62. And so the kicker became the holder, and the holder became the kicker. And when he snapped the ball, he kicked the ball into the rear end of the center who snapped the ball. And Charlie McClendon was just going crazy. He said, what are you doing? And uh, they said, well, coach, we just needed to leave it like it is. You know, it's better this way. <laughs> oh, I forgot what I was trying to say, but that's all right. But Christ's passion is to do the will of, of what the Father sent him to do. Nothing less. It was a horrible thing to do. You would not want to go through that. He endured it. Not because it made him feel good physically. He did it because he knew that it accomplished what God had sent him to do. And it makes possible the salvation of anyone who will put their faith and trust and Christ as their Redeemer. Revelation 1.18, it says that he has the keys to death and Hades. That's as a result of the cross. He conquered death. He was the one who could go down to Hades and empty it and say, all you believers, you're going home. And those who are unbelievers, he went and gave them the message that there's an atonement has been made. And you choose to reject it. Well, that leads us to our third. We looked at that. That leads us to the choice of God praise from 8 to 11. It says, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, that's us, that's the church, they fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing, they sing a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain, and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
Thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. When he goes to establish his kingdom, he says, these people will reign with me. That's you and I. We will have a part in the administration of Christ's kingdom. And I looked, verse 11, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And if you interpret that, it means a whole bunch, more than, than you could count at that time. And they were saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. They must have been deacons. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So all heaven breaks loose. And there's worship at the focal center. There's worship right there at the throne. And then there's worship everywhere in God's creation. Everybody will worship and say, Worthy is the Lamb. We don't need to investigate. We don't need a, a Senate committee. He has the right to take that book. And he has the right to break those seals because he is the Christ. He is the one who went to Calvary in obedience to the Father. He accomplished everything the Father wanted him to do. And God has been a God of grace. He's allowed time to go on today. Why doesn't he come today? Well, for one reason, because he wants more time for people to choose to come to him. But one day, the day of the Lord will come. And Christ will come for his church. And then, he'll take the book. And then the tribulation will begin when he breaks the seals and all the judgmental programs will begin to pour out. By taking the book, he's claiming authority to execute the judgments that are contained in the scroll upon those who dwell on the earth. John 5, 26 and 27, it says, Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. That phrase, Son of Man, is Christ's most often self-used term. He referred to himself as the Son of Man more than any other term. And the reason he did it was because he knew that that was a direct link to the, to, to the uh, person of Messiah. Because in Daniel chapter 7, when Daniel saw the vision of the kingdoms, and then he saw uh, the one on the throne who brought judgment, and then all of a sudden one who was the son of man, he approached, and to him was given the kingdom and the dominion. So that's a title for Messiah. Philippians chapter 2, Therefore God also highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in earth and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Worthy is the Lamb. That's a proclamation of thanksgiving. We have a Savior unlike any other. He atoned for our sin with his own blood. He was raised from the dead and taken back to heaven to be with the Father. He advocates for us 24-7 as our great high priest on the basis of what he accomplished on the cross. There's no one like him. Never has been, never, ever will be. Dr. Walford, I think, uh, agrees with what we said about the, the 24 elders. He says, for the same reason, the elders do not seem to be a proper representation of Israel. For Israel's judgment also seems to come at the end of the tribulation, not before. Only the church, which is raptured before chapter 4, is properly complete in heaven and eligible for reward at the judgment seat of Christ. In that case, the crowns of gold by the way, in chapter 4, it says that they have crowns on their head, and these are not the diadems, the crown of royalty. We have the victor's crowns. We're wearing the victor's crowns. That's why there's reward. So the crowns of gold on the heads of the 24 elders would be fitting at this point and would seem to confirm the idea that these may be the representation, may be representative of the church in glory. Thank you. Dear Dr. Walford, the Christology of heaven, there's no debate. People debate it down here, but they don't debate it in heaven. They know who he is, and they worship him as the divine son and the only one worthy to open the seals and bring judgment to the earth. Why do we worship Christ? Because of who he is. He's the eternal son of God. Because of where he is, he's now back in the presence of the Father, having gone to the cross and conquered death by his own resurrection. We worship him because of what he did. He atoned for our sin. And we worship him because of what he will do. One day he will take that book and begin to unleash the judgments on the earth. And the church will be with him, safe and sound. And at the end of that judgmental period, then he will return with his bride and he will establish a kingdom on earth that will last for a thousand years. The most unprecedented time of peace and prosperity the world has ever known. But you know what's sad? At the end of that period, it says that God will allow Satan to have one final chance to, to tempt people. And a number will go with him a number that cannot be counted as, the, as the, the sand of the seashore. It's, it's just inconceivable that a person would say no after a thousand years of witnessing utopia, the way God wanted it to be before sin marred it. But that shows you how sinful the heart is. It's, it's, it's wicked. And these people that choose to oppose, they will be immediately taken out, and there will be a part of the judgment that will come. 
John Peterson was a great songwriter, and he wrote a song, and he went to a publisher to get it published, and they said, John, uh, it's a good song, like the tune, but the words are going to kind of narrow the focus a little bit. Uh, you talk about Jesus, um, Christ, and if, if you would maybe just say God, well then, you know, anybody that believes in God, they could identify with your song. And he said, no, no, he said, I, I, I can't do that. And so he said, well, we, we can't publish your song. So he went back to his home, and he was a little downtrodden about it. And suddenly God gave him another song. And he immediately wrote the words, I have no song to sing but that of Christ my King. I hope that's the attitude of your heart. I have no song to sing but that of Christ my King. I sing praise to Him. I worship Him. Thanksgiving is not just to thank God for the pilgrims who, who showed us how to grow corn. But Thanksgiving is a time to focus on who we really are and who He really is and what He's already done and what still remains to be done. And uh, it's like reading the end of the book. We know that we win. We know that it's all going to work to turn out okay. Uh, but nevertheless, it has to go according to God's dictates. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You can be as righteous as God through Christ, never through yourself or through a church or through an organization. We must have his righteousness, and that is available because he died for us. His sin was imputed, our sin was imputed to him, and his righteousness is imputed to you, the believer, the moment you put your trust in him. Romans 3 talks about being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. I'll close with this. C.S. Lewis made this statement. It's a, one of his greatest uh, quotes. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really silly thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God, unquote. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either he was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, or kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But don't let us come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He hasn't left that open to us. He did not intend to. Good quote. Well, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving. I really do. Enjoy the food, the football, the Cowboys are going to win, the uh, my Tigers are going to beat A&M. It's going to be a great weekend. But don't forget to look up and say, Lord, what a, what a life you've given me. And the best is yet to come. And be thankful for all that he's done for you and will continue to do for you 
until you see him face to face. Father, I thank you so much for who your son is. He did what no other person could do, no other man. If he were just a sinless man, he could have he could have been a substitute for one guilty man, but he was a substitute for all of humanity. Therefore, he had to be God as well as man because the value of his death was of infinite worth. And I thank you, Father, that when I heard the gospel, you moved in my heart and gave me a desire to want him, to want to know him, to want to have him as my Savior. And for all of us, Father, who've done that, may every day be an opportunity for us to live a day where we can serve him and honor him and tell others who need to know about him. And Father, this week, leading up to Thanksgiving, as we gather with family and friends, uh, may we not forget to thank you for all that we have, for it, it all comes from you. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like for you to sing with us, please, as we look forward to this week of Thanksgiving. a grateful heart give thanks to the Holy One give thanks because he's given Jesus Christ his son give thanks with a grateful heart give thanks to the Holy One give thanks because he's given Jesus Christ his Son. And now let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich. Because of what the Lord has done for us. And now let the strong. Let the poor say I am rich because of what the Lord has done for us. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because He's given Jesus Christ his Son. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because he's given Jesus Christ his Son. And now let the weak say I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich, because of what the Lord has done for us.
say I am strong. Let the poor say I am rich because of what the Lord has done for us. Give thanks. Give thanks. Give thanks. Ron. Uh, it's Thanksgiving week, and some things are being phoned, uh, uh, but some things are going on, so keep up with your bulletin. And uh, by the way, if you want to get announcements about things that happen, call the office and, and tell them, and they'll put your phone on their, their roto thing, and they send a message out, and if you want it, you can get it. If you don't want it, tell them, and they'll, they'll delete it. I don't know why I would do that, but that's, that's, you can do that. But um, there are things to sign up for right outside. But uh, we, we're still here. We're still functioning. But it's Thanksgiving week, and we want to enjoy it. Father, as we leave, we rejoice, and we give thanks to you for all that we have. It's all in evidence of your love for us and your grace to us. May we just enjoy uh, every day living as children of God. In his name, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're just...